come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 182 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So on this episode here for you is going to be another Traverse of the Threes. This is number five, as I have Evil Dead Rise paired up with The Crying Woman from 1933. This actually goes by the original title of La Llorona. I believe I'm saying that right. I don't know. I can't necessarily, but regardless. I also have many reviews for you of Tenebrae. Paranoic, which is going to be my Traverse of the Threes, as that's from 1963. I also got to rewatch The Offering, and then the last one is a little bit of Summer Series Prep with An Angel for Satan. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. I will say is like, just because this is actually coming out on May 1st, I don't have time to do a monthly review. I've got a, quite a few movies that I've been watching this weekend, so that'll go on the next episode. Just keep an eye out for that, so just that's where I'm at there. So what I will say then is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be Tenebrae from 1982, directed by Dario Argento, who also wrote this. This stars Anthony Francicosa, might be mispronouncing that one, Giuliano Gemma, and Christian Borromeo. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Italy, of course. This is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, an American writer in Rome is stalked by a serial killer bent on harassing him while killing all people associated with his work on his latest book. So this is one of the last Argento films that I end up watching. I still haven't seen Giallo and I haven't seen Pelts or Jennifer. I believe those last two are Masters of Horror episodes. I could be wrong on at least one of those. So I heard a lot of good things about this one, but I just hadn't found the time originally. Now, it was part of a 31 Days of Halloween that I was doing as I needed one in the subgenre and a film that fit the year. But I am now giving this a second watch at the Gateway Film Center in 4K. So this one is interesting is some of the concepts that are used here are still used today. 
There is a duality and meta nature as the killer is bringing to life what happened in the novel of the same name. Now, a lot of what we're seeing here could be seen in Scream in a way, which was made popular in the mainstream for doing meta stuff. It is interesting because the murders in the novel also are going after people of deviant nature. The first kill is a shoplifter, and then the next two are a lesbian couple. That is something quite realistic to what happened even today. As we have some people who sometimes go around killing people because they have certain beliefs in their head. I mean, some of the school shootings kind of fall into this, but I'll digress. But it's this interesting idea of this writer being blamed for the killings or sharing the same beliefs that factor in. So, I'm not much versed... Okay, I've seen a decent number of Gialli now, and I've seen even more since my first viewing, but one of the things that I grade films on is if I can guess the killer or not. This film had me guessing until the end. It presents things in a way that, if you try to ignore it, it can lead to red herrings. So, I mean, you gotta kind of figure out what information is important and what could be leading you that way. The reveal as to what happened was something I thought was good. It takes advantage of what is happening around them. My first watch, I had a pacing issue. This time around, it didn't bother me. This could be my taste and understanding has changed. Now, the ending was good as well. It's more of a traditional one, but I did find it to be interesting. Now, the last thing for the story that I wanted to explore is that I've heard that Argento made this film in response to people saying that the effects it had on people and questioning his morals. I love them creating the story about a writer who can't control what people read or watch his stuff. He also cannot help if it's popular and it's consumed. This feels like something that John Carpenter might be using for In the Mouth of Madness. It also explains why the police would come to him to help to solve the case as well. So I'm going to move over to the acting. This was something else I thought was good. Francisco, or however you'd say his name, I thought he was interested as a writer. He seems like the typical hero of a giallo. He's not a police officer, but as a murder mystery writer, he gets drawn into the investigation, even more so since it's his book that is being mirrored. How it plays out with him in the end works. Gemma was interesting as the main detective. I like that he doesn't rule out Peter, who could be the suspect. Now that's the writer, Peter Neal. But there's also so much evidence against it being him. He doesn't strong arm him like cops tend to do in this genre, and I like that. He doesn't necessarily seek out his help though either. Daria Nicolodi was solid as she always seems to be. She does well in support. It's also fun to see John Saxon here. I find it interesting that he did a lot of Italian cinema because I know him from things like Black Christmas as well as, of course, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, the rest of the cast around this are solid, especially to our women who were killed as we do get some nudity there. Now, lastly would be the filmmaking. First, I'll look at the effects, which are quite amazing. This is something I come to expect from Argento, and it doesn't disappoint. The blood's color is a bit off, but not as bad as some films in the decade prior. The wounds on characters look so real, and that made me cringe. Attacks with this from this killer are creative with the weapons used. They're not all done with a straight razor, but the cinematography is great. Argento knows exactly how to frame it. And we also get some interesting camera movements as well. Now, something else I want to talk about would be the soundtrack. Now, I know it's done by members of Goblin, but they weren't all together at this time. The theme is iconic. I listened to it quite a bit, even before my first watch of this movie. They're one of my favorite groups when it comes to scoring films, and it's funny that they have catalog music used in a few different spots here. And, I mean, they're also in different cuts of Dawn of the Dead as well. That made me smile when I heard them. So, in conclusion, this is great. The more from the subgenre I see, the more I can appreciate what Argento did for it. It is one of the better films that I have seen. The story is interesting in its look, and it's considering, you know, killing after deviant sexual behaviors, in quotes, and metafiction. The twists and turns are well done. Even before knowing parts of the reveal, I could still couldn't remember who was behind this. Now, the acting helps to bring this to life, and it is good, as are the effects 
and the score. I don't have anything negative to say. This is a great film. I will warn you that's from Italy and the dubbing might be slightly off. If that's not an issue, this is a good murder mystery horror film. So my rating here for Tenebrae at the second watch is going to be a 9.5 out of 10. I also think this has solidified itself in the top five for me from Argento. And for my second mini review is going to be my Traverse of the Threes, like the older movie, and that's going to be Paranoic. I think that's how you'd say it. It's from 1963. This was directed by Freddie Francis. It was written by Jimmy Sangster, and it also looks like that Josephine Tay wrote the novel that it's loosely based off of, of Brat Farah. This stars Jeanette Scott, Oliver Reed, and Shayla Burrell. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, A man long believed dead returns to the family estate to claim his inheritance. So this is a film that I didn't know about until picking up a DVD that featured the Phantom of the Opera from 1962. Now these are both of course Hammer films. I decided to see this since it was on that DVD and I remember enjoying this one quite a bit. It had been a while since that first viewing, so I was kind of glad to give it a rewatch as part of this little section here that I'm doing. So, I want to go from here is that I didn't fully remember this movie coming in, so it was like watching it again for the first time. What I will say is I rather enjoyed this one. It is a dark brooding feel that is built from the dark past of this family with the mental state of the surviving children. I'd say this one feels like it's borrowing a bit from Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. Our siblings are pitted against each other, but their mental state is in question. So I want to start is that mental state that I'm kind of bringing up here. So we have Simon, who is portrayed by Reed, and then we have Eleanor, who is portrayed by Scott. Now, Simon is trying to get Eleanor to snap completely. If he does, he inherits everything. He has a chip on his shoulder as he feels slighted. It seems like everybody loved Tony more than him. And it doesn't help that Simon is a brooding young man that drinks too much. He is hard towards everyone. Aunt Harry is worried about him, but he is cold toward her even. He isn't liked by anyone. Reed does an amazing job in a role like this. It is a shame that alcoholism was what killed him. So this younger character is mirroring him where he'd end up. So to finish this out though, Simon is also greedy. On the other side, you have Eleanor who doesn't care about the money. Her mental state is fragile. She lost her parents and her beloved brother. There is hope that when she sees this figure that she believes is Tony that it's going to help. Now Aunt Harriet is worried about what people think of the family. This upsets her with how Simon acts. He thinks that Eleanor should be the one that takes more of her burden. This is interesting with the truth that of what happened and what gets revealed there as well. I'd say that Scott has a good performance along with Reed. The last bit for the story is that if Tony is who he says he is or not, so this is portrayed by Alexander Davian. I won't reveal this since it'll spoil part of the movie, but what I will say is this comes around the halfway point as to the truth, or at least not too long after we see that Tony has returned. There's an odd relationship that forms between him and Eleanor. This hurts her mental state as well. I think that Davian is good in this role. My issue is that I feel like his sister and that plotline has an odd way of being tied up. Now, where I think I'm going to go from there will be the rest of the cast. Now, we have Burl, who is Aunt Harriet, who is solid as this old-school aunt. She cares more about how the family is seen and less about truly helping them. This fits the status and background. Now, we also have Maurice Denham, who is John Cossett. He is good as his hardened attorney. I like John Bonney, who is his son of Keith, who is corrupt. We also have Liliane Brosseau, who is portraying Francois. 
I thought she was cute as a nurse. I'd say the rest of the cast in general was solid for what was needed. Other than that, I'll go to the filmmaking. The cinematography is good. I think this is, you know, getting to know the manor and how wealthy this family is. There's also that feeling that there isn't much left, though, or it's being spent too fast by Simon. We also get the bleakness of the cliffs. This is where Tony was supposed to have died. I liked that. Now, there's also not a lot in the way of effects. We also don't need them. It's not that type of story. There's a creepy mask as well as a mummified body. Those are both solid. Now, the soundtrack also fits the use of the organ music and the singing of this, like, boy that's on record. This is all well-made overall, in my opinion. So then, in conclusion, I'm glad that I finally revisited this one. We are getting a one-off Hammer film that I think deserves more attention. There are elements of the old Dark House. We have this family who is wealthy but has a dark hidden secret. I like the elements of the House of Usher with questioning the mental status of everyone. The acting helps there. Special credit to Reed, Scott, and Davian. This is also well made. I can't recommend it to everybody, but if you like older cinema, especially Hammer films, I would say give this one a watch. So my rating here for Paranoic is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I also gave a rewatch to a movie that was technically from last year, but it's getting its wide release this year, and that's The Offering. This is directed by Oliver Park. It was written between Hank Hoffman and Jonathan Younger. This stars Nick Blood, Emily Wiseman, and Paul Kay. This is a horror film that is a co-production between the United States, United Kingdom, and Bulgaria. Currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being... A family struggling with loss find themselves at the mercy of an ancient demon trying to destroy them from the inside. So this is one that if you want to hear a featured review, it's episode 168, which was New Year, New Movie Number 13. And as well as at the Gateway Film Center, and I paired this up with Rituals. Kind of a little cheeky thing there since both kind of involve different types of rituals. But I ended up giving this a rewatch as the score was high enough, so I just wanted to see where I would fall with that second go-around. So... I didn't know anything coming in that first time, aside from the title. This works for me with the exploration of this creature and the use of religion. It's called Abazo, and then this is kind of was also used in like the Possession from 2012, where it was the Dubuk, and I guess it's also something brought up in the Slenderman movie that's not very good from what I heard, but I also like the use of you know religion that I'm not versed in. We get dark subject matter with this entity and what it needs. I thought the acting was good. This is well made. They go CGI with the demon, but I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. There are effects that don't look great, not enough to ruin this, and I would say this is, would make a great double feature with The Vigil as well. That's a better movie, but I think if you've seen that, I think you'll enjoy this enough, and I do still recommend giving this a viewing. So my rating came down that first time. I was at an 8 out of 10. Now I've come down to a 7.5 out of 10. No slouch, definitely worth the viewing, but probably one that's going to get a little bit forgotten, unfortunately, as it's not great, but just decent. And I also got to watch An Angel for Satan. This goes by the original title of Un Angelo per Santana. This is from 1966. This was directed by Camilo Mastriocinca. And then the story is by Luigi Emanuel. It looks like Mastrocinca and Giuseppe Mangioni did the screenplay. And this comes from the novel by Antonio Fogazzaro. This stars Barbara Steele, Anthony Stefan, and Claudio Gora. This is a horror mystery film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, at the end of the 19th century, in a little Italian village, by a lake, an old statue is recovered. Soon a series of crimes start, and superstitious people of the village believe that the statue carries an ancient malediction. 
So this movie that I sought out for prepping for the Summer Challenge series on the podcast Under the Stairs. I didn't know much about this one aside that it was from Italy. I was excited to see that it featured Steele in her last film for this country. And I did see this was also going to be gothic, so that was another one that kind of intrigued me as well. So I'm going to go a little bit shorter with my recap here, of course, because I don't want to spoil anything for that series. But what I like about this one is that we do have the statue and there's a potential curse on it. This doesn't waste any time getting into it because there is a boat that brings over our main character of Roberto, who is portrayed by Stefan. And then that boat sinks soon after, killing the two fishermen. And it's actually kind of odd because they're both strong swimmers, but for whatever reason, they you know die in that whole thing there. And then the statue is being commissioned to be restored by the Count Monte Bruno, portrayed by Gora. And then it is through some of these different things that Barbara Steele is Harriet, who is his niece. And then she comes home. She hits it off with Roberto, but then weird things start happening as he is restoring the statue. Should point out that Belinda is the ancestor that the statue was made by, or like they used as a model for it, and then Steele also plays that character. So the statue was so beautiful that men in the village fell in love with it. So then the woman that had it made had it destroyed, or actually just pushed into the lake. And then just weird things have been happening when the statue is up. And I actually kind of think it's kind of cool here is that Harriet slash, you know, Belinda, is she possessed? Is she not? But then she starts to kind of flirt with some of the men in the town, and that creates some issues here. She does things with, like, Carlo, who is portrayed by Mario Brega. He's a kind of brute of a man. And then we have Rita, who is the housekeeper. That's Ursula Davis. There is a teacher of Dario Morelli, portrayed by Vasily Caris. There's also a gardener of Vittoro, portrayed by Aldo Berti. So she kind of does different things. It almost feels like needful things. Like, I wonder if Stephen King might have seen this and kind of was inspired to write that. Because she'll tell one man one thing and then go to another man and tell another thing. And then it creates issues between them. I actually think that I also like the idea here of traditional superstitious beliefs of the past with more modern sensibilities. Like, Carlo and the other villagers don't want this statue to be restored and they believe in the curse. Then we have the Monto Bruno family and Roberto don't believe in it. Now, there are some things that end up, you know, getting the lines blurred here a bit. Made me wonder throughout if there was going to be a possession here. Things do get explained in the end, and I think it's not a bad way of kind of going about it. I would also say that the acting is what makes this work. Steel is great, as she gets to take on dual roles here, as she is the meek Harriet, who's almost shy, and then she has Belinda, who is rude and vicious. I like seeing the range there. Stefan is solid as Roberto. He is our hero, and he is good there as this one who's trying to find the truth. Gora was good as the Count. Then we also have, like I said, Brega, Karis, Aldo Berti, and the rest of the cast were good as those that get caught up in what Harriet and Belinda are doing. I also thought that Mariana Berti and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well. So then I also think this is a well-made movie. The cinematography here is good. They do capture the feel of this town, which is what you really need to do. We also have this large estate for the Montebruno family. thought that was solid. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but we don't need them either. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack and design of the movie was good. There is something with a clock and the chiming that I liked, and there is significance there. So I would just say that in conclusion, this is a solid gothic horror movie from Italy. The best part is the acting. Steele leads the way with the rest of the cast being good around her. There is a simple enough lore that gets introduced and held my interest with how it affects our characters. This also was well made, which is also solid. I would say that this one didn't blow me away. What it does is work in the confines of what was needed, exploring a bit of this social hierarchy. 
Be warned, this is in black and white as well as being dubbed due to being foreign, but if there's no issues there, I would give this one a watch, and I think it's an interesting one to check out. So I'm not going to give my rating here for an Angel for Satan just because it could be on the Summer Challenge series, but I would, I said, recommend it. And then for my last stuff here is going to be, I watched three episodes of The Twilight Zone. The first one was Printer's Devil. This was directed by Ralph Seneski. This was written between Charles Beaumont and Rod Serling. It stars Robert Sterling and Pat Crowley and Burgess Meredith. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. Currently sitting on an 8.0. So this one, the synopsis is a man sells his soul to the devil to save his failing newspaper and gets more than he bargained for. So this one's kind of an interesting episode here is that Burgess Meredith plays Mr. Smith who ends up seeing Douglas Winter as his newspaper is falling apart and offers to help him out. And actually, Douglas is about to kill himself. So things all change as this newspaper gets hot with having scoops and everything. The thing is, it might be that Mr. Smith might be up to some no, like be up to no good with what he's printing because he's getting stories out like very before anybody really knows about what is happening could be causing it. I think this is kind of an interesting little thing about you know selling your soul to the devil to you know be successful and everything and what would you do there. So I rather enjoyed that one. I gave that one an eight out of ten where it ended up. Then the next one was No Time Like the Past. This one was directed by Justice Addis, written by Serling, stars Dana Andrews, Patricia Breslin, and Malcolm Atterbury. Another one that's a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller from the United States. This one's sitting on a 7.4, and our synopsis is, A scientist attempts to use a time machine to prevent tragedies both in world history and his own past. This one I rather liked. Dana Andrews plays Paul Driscoll. He goes back to different points throughout history, like when you know Hitler was given a speech and trying to potentially change these different things, but he actually realizes that it's more difficult than he thinks, and he tries to stop things, but no matter what he does, they still seem to happen. I thought this was kind of a good thing of being be careful what you're trying to do here. There's a good message there, and because, I mean, if you try to do things, you might end up creating more issues with the butterfly effect. This one, though... It's kind of just meanders because nothing really kind of happens in it. Like, he does kind of fall in love. It almost feels like Stephen King might have also borrowed from this one for 11 63 So, I rather enjoyed this one as well, and I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. And the last one is The Parallel. This one was directed by Alan Crosland Jr., written by Serling. It stars Stephen Forrest, Jacqueline Scott, and Frank Allater. This one, another one that's a drama, fantasy, horror mystery sci-fi thriller from the United States currently sit on a 7.6 and an astronaut Robert Gaines returns from space to a world that's not exactly like the one he left what I love about this one is that we're really kind of dealing with alternate dimensions and almost like the multiverse here where Robert goes up in a spaceship when he comes home things are just similar but slightly different I love this because I believe that this is a possibility with how time works and everything like that I actually think this one has a lot of heart because the wife and daughter he goes home to don't believe that he is who he says he is. I don't like how this one ends those. I kind of feel like it's almost retconning things that we got, but still a solid little one I thought there just because of some of the elements that we got and especially being as early into cinema like we are and like television. So I gave that one a 7.5 as well. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you into here for my mini review. So let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. What's up? 
And for my first feature review on this episode is going to be Evil Dead Rise. This is from here in 2023. This is directed by Lee Cronin, who also wrote this. It stars Lily Sullivan, Nell Fisher, and Alyssa Sutherland, while also featuring... Mary by Pease, Richard Crouchley, Anna Marie Thomas, Noah Paul, Gabrielle Eccles, Morgan Davies, Nell Fisher, Billy Reynolds McCarthy, Taiwano, Jaden Daniels, Mark Mitchinson, and Melissa Zhao. This is a horror film that is from a co-production of the New Zealand, <laughs> United States, and Ireland. This is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a twisted tale of two estranged sisters who reunion is cut short by the rise of flesh-possessing demons, thrusting them into a primal battle for survival as they face the most nightmarish version of family imaginable. So this is a movie that I was both intrigued and excited for. The former because I heard this was going to be a continuation of sorts of the Evil Dead series. I'll get back to what I think there, but I was excited about the prospect of this. It's one that I saw at the Gateway Film Center during the opening weekend as well. And I mean, actually it became kind of contentious between my wife and I as I was starting to wonder if I was going to miss it due to just other obligations. But she's a saint and I end up going to check it out. So then before I jump into the movie, let me do some featured notes and I'll start with our director of Cronin. I've seen two of his ten works that he's helmed, Aider and Horror. I've seen Hole in the Ground and Now This. 
He's done mostly shorts, as he did one for an anthology called Minutes Past Midnight from 2016. Now he has two upcoming works of Thaw and Box of Bones. Now as a writer, he has nine. I've seen the same two. Seven of his are also in horror again. And there are ones that he's already directed as well. Now then over to the actors. Sullivan is where I'll start, and she has 12. This is the only one that I've seen. Now she has three in genre. Her first was Dark Place. Then she did a short called Killer Native ahead of this. Then her co-star of Sutherland has seven films. I've seen two. Three of what she's done are in horror. Her first was Don't Look Up, which I have not seen, but I remember seeing the poster for that one, or I guess like the box art. Now I have seen Blood Vessel ahead of this one here. Then the last is going to be Davies. He has 12 works that he's been in. I've seen two. The first was The Hunter from 2011, which is an interesting little film with William Defoe. Now then, he also has done a short in horror that is called Bussy from 2021. Now, we start this off at a lake house. Hanging out there is Teresa, portrayed by Pease, along with Caleb, who is Crouchley, and his girlfriend Jessica, portrayed by Thomas. Now, the latter is cousins of the former. What was supposed to be a fun weekend turns into a nightmare. We then shift one day into the past to find out the events that led to what happened out in the, you know, the woods. Now, Beth, who is portrayed by Sullivan, is in town and works as a guitar tech for a band. She learns that she is pregnant, and it doesn't seem planned. She seeks out the aid of her sister, Ellie, portrayed by Sutherland. Now, she lives with her three children of Danny, portrayed by Davies, Bridget, portrayed by Eccles, and Casey, portrayed by Fisher. They have problems of their own, though. The building they're living in is run down and is set to be demolished, and they don't have a place to go as of yet. Now, the sister shows up to spend time with her family and to figure out what she should do about her situation. What she learns, though, is that her sister has problems of her own. Of course, her housing situation, but she can't just drop them to help like she usually does, as Ellie's husband left her, so this makes everything that much worse. When this night doesn't seem like it could get any worse, an earthquake hits. The children were out to get pizza, and they were in the parking garage when it happened. It opens a hole in the ground. The building used to be a bank before it was converted into apartments. Now Danny goes down there and finds some odd items. There are a few records being kept in a safety deposit box. He also discovers what looks like a tomb with crosses and other religious items over top of it. Now there's a hole in the bottom and he reaches in. He finds an odd box inside. He takes these items with him when he shouldn't. And I should say, it's not really a box, it's actually the book. And it's got like cockroaches on top of it when he takes the like sheath off of it. Then back up in the apartment, the family settles in for the night. Danny and Bridget try to open the book, but it needs blood. He decides to listen to the record. What he doesn't realize is that he unleashes supernatural forces. Their existence then becomes an even worse nightmare when they're trapped on this floor. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is with my breakdown is that this isn't a sequel in my opinion. This is more of another remake, reboot, or just, I mean, I guess it could potentially transition there. But from what we get in this one, this one just kind of feels like it's taking the same ideas and... We're kind of getting that this could almost be a like prequel of sorts even though obviously the ones took place in the past but whatever i'm just gonna say is that this feels more like a reboot we are introducing some different lore while having nods and homages to the series here that's not to say i hated this if anything this feels like a hybrid of sam raimi's films with the remake i'll then get into why i think this we have a new take on the necronomicon it doesn't have a face on the cover, but it doesn't have teeth or like claw-like things on the side. Danny cuts himself, and this blood causes it to open. It also seems to pay homage to the original and sequel, where those had tape recordings being played, and this one has records. I like that touch. What is interesting is that it seems like religious figures did the translations, which also is a solid change. They had this material locked away and was forgotten. 
It makes me think the forces at play here had a hand in the earthquake to free them. It is from here that we get a brutal movie. This is where it feels like the remake to me with how far it goes. That's not to say that the Evil Dead or the sequel don't have this, just not on the level of the remake. This version also has the family instead of just a group of friends. There is an added dimension that the mother says horrible things to her children. It almost makes it harder for them to hurt those that are possessed. This also has another wrinkle. I like the characters better here, so that makes me feel bad when something bad happens to them. I'm not as annoyed with how the summoning happens. I think that I should then go over to the what works best here, and that's the effects. I'm assuming that we're getting a combination of practical and CGI. It looked to me like they went heavier with the former, with the latter there just to kind of enhance. Looking at the poster, I assume what the smile was done with CGI, so I was worried. Having watched this, I don't think that's the case. The poster just looks that way. I was impressed with the effects, and they made me cringe with different things that they did. If there was CGI, then it was fine. It didn't stand out or hold anything back. I also thought that the cinematography here was good. They paid homage to the movies of the past with how the camera moves. They also have some things that make the audience think one thing and then go another. That made me smile. Other than that, I think the soundtrack fit for what was needed. The creepiness of the voices of the possessed was good. And the use of the record adds another touch here as well. All that's left to go into would be the acting before doing a little bit of trivia. I think that the family is good here. They are distinct characters, I don't dislike any of them, and they also play being possessed well when needed. This includes Sullivan, Sutherland, Eccles, Davies, and Fisher. We also, I would say that Reynolds, McCarthy, Wano, Daniels, and Mitchinson are solid as neighbors. Now, Pease, Crouchley, and Thomas also the tone with their cold open as well. So then, I'm not going to do all the trivia on here, but this was originally going to go to HBO Max, but the test screens did so well, the studio decided to go theatrical. Director Lee Cronin said in an interview that 6,500 liters or 1,720 gallons of fake blood were used. The pizza place is called Henrietta's. This is a reference to Evil Dead 2, shot in chronological order. On the Extra Vision podcast, Cronin revealed that all the character names were names after actors that had previously appeared in the series. Also on that... The name of the building in the movie is Mondi, which is anagram of demon. Cronin also confirmed online that the cat seen and heard in the events of the apartment complex didn't vac survive the end, just because we don't actually see that. This brings Evil Dead back to New Line Cinema, who distributed the original theatrical release of the OG, of course. The only Evil Dead film not to feature the 73 Oldsmobile Delta 88 Royal Vehicle. And then the color of the chainsaw used in the final act is yellow, unlike the standard red, which has been used in every other Evil Dead film. And when the title card appears, you can see it's also reflected by the lake below. I'm not going to do any of the other ones because those go into spoilers, so I will say, in conclusion, this is a fun and gory reimagining to the classic. This feels like it's borrowing the dark elements of the original series and combining things of the brutality to the previous remake. I don't mind setting the new lore. I did hear that this was going to have a sequel of sorts, or this was going to be a sequel of sorts, and I actually heard that there's going to be some because how well this one did, so I'm curious to see if we'll get another bridge to that. Something I did even bring up was the setting in the high-rise. I like the fact that we have a good reason for a limited cast, should say as well the setting was good. The performances are solid, the effects are on point as well being well made. I just enjoyed my time here. I would recommend this to horror fans for sure. So my rating here for Evil Dead Rise is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review.
And for my second featured review is going to be The Crying Woman. This goes by the original title of La Llorona. I might be mispronouncing that, but I do apologize. This is from 1933, directed by Ramon Peñan. This is the story by A. Guzman Aguilera. And then it looks like the adaptation was done by Carlos Noriega Hope and Fernando de Fuentes. Now, this stars Ramon Pereira, Virginia Zuri, and Carlos Arellana. And then it also features Adriana Lamar, Alberto Marti, Esperanza de Real, Paco Martinez, Maria Luisa Zay, Alfredo de Destro, Conchita Gentil Arcos, Antonio R. Frosto, Veronica Blanco, and Manuel Donde. If I mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize. But this is a horror mystery film that is from Mexico. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, Lorona is a unique figure in Mexican folklore. The wailing spirit of a woman who lost or killed her child and now returns to seek revenge and haunt the living. So this is a movie that I found when looking for horror films from 1933. And I'll be honest, my first introduction to the lore of La Llorona, aka The Crying Woman, was thanks to The Conjuring Universe. I saw that movie had dealt with the entity in the theater and realized that this was a staple of Mexican culture. It's a story that I would like to learn more about and excited to check out You know this movie here. So let me do some feature notes first, and I'll start with our director of Pan. He helmed 33 films. This is the first that I've seen, only one in horror. Then for the writers, first is Aguilera. They wrote 12 works. I've only ever seen this one, only one in genre. Then there's Di Fuentes. He wrote 28 movies. I've only ever seen this. He did four in horror. This was the first, and then he followed it with Phantom of the Convent from the next year, House of Terror from 1960, and The Face of the Screaming Werewolf from 1964. Last year is Hope. They had two projects, only one I've seen and in genre. Then over to the cast, Pareda has 24 films. I've only ever seen this one. He did two other in horror with El Diablo Del Mar from 1935 and El Bao Macabro from 1936. Ziri had six appearances, only one in horror and that I have seen. Now last is Aurelian. They had 48 movies. I've only ever seen this. He also had three in genre. After this, he did El Signo de la Muerta from 1939 and Castle of the Monsters from 1958. And actually, I'm going to do the trivia right now because it actually looks like all the trivia here is Lamar's debut, Zaya's debut, and Blanco's debut as well. So let's get into this. We start off with seeing a stone image. This will come back into play later. Then there is a man walking outside. It is close to midnight, and when it strikes, this man dies. It is thought to be a heart attack, while others believe the spirit of La Llorona. Now, Dr. Ricardo de Acuna, portrayed by Parody, doesn't believe in the supernatural. He believes there's a medical reason as to the death of this man. But it's also an important day. Ricardo's son, Juanito, is turning four. Helping to throw the party is Ricardo's wife and the mother of this boy, Ana Maria, portrayed by Ziri. Also here is Ana's father, Don Fernando de Moncada, portrayed by Paco Martinez. He takes Ricardo aside to tell him the story of his family and their curse. Now, this is actually Ricardo's family he's telling the story of. We then go into flashback to learn what happened. Now, in the past, Pareda portrays his ancestor, who is the captain of the guard, Diego Diacuna. He is in love with a woman by the name of Ana Zicantel Cato. I mispronounced that horribly, but that's Lamar. 
Now, she has the illegitimate child of the local royalty, Marquis de Valla, portrayed by Alberto Marti. There is an issue here that he cannot recognize her child as it would upset his family. Diego doesn't like this and calls out the Marquis in front of the church where the Marquise is getting married. This creates a whole issue that will lead to Anna killing her own son. Ricardo then finds the story interesting but doesn't believe that it's affecting anything here. We see that there's a hooded figure in the house trying to kill Juanito. This person is referred to as La Malinchi. Now Ricardo needs to figure out what is going on here before it's too late. Whomever this hooded figure is might not be working on their own free will. The spirit of La Llorona might be involved. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that this is different than I was expecting. What I appreciate here is that this establishes the lore and a couple of possibilities as to what the you know history of this ghost story and lore could have been. What I've heard is that this woman was upset for being left, which is in line with Anna and her son not being recognized by Marquise de Vala. She then drowned her children. Those that encounter her hear her crying, and some of that is here. Now, there's also a creepy cry that comes with this ghostly ap apparition that we see a couple times. I did like that as it made it spooky. I do need to shift to a negative here, though. We don't get a lot of it. This movie decides to ground what we are getting. I don't mind what the reveal is. What works there is that whoever is behind it is not able to control themselves. It is a bit of a possession film there. What I would have preferred, though, is more of a ghost story. We can keep what we get, but just give me more haunting. I understand that this is a me problem. I'm projecting on what I want as opposed to what we get. Now, what did work here was the history we get. A variation of how La Llorona became the figure that she did was good to me. I even like that we're getting another aspect here of what she came after another of the D. Acuna ancestors. Now, what is interesting about what we are given is that Ricardo is both correct and wrong. I thought it was a good route to go. Where I should go then is the acting. I thought that Perita did a good job in dual roles as Ricardo and his ancestor of Diego. We are in early cinema, so it doesn't do a whole lot, but I thought it still worked. Zuri was good as his protective mother. The same could be said for Lamar, but what she does drives her mad. It fits for what they needed for the lore. Marti was solid in, her, in his double roles. I didn't pick up the fact that he was also Rodrigo de Cortez, who is actually the groundskeeper for Ricardo and that family. It makes more sense now. Other than that, I would say that Olorellan and de Riel, Martinez and the rest of the cast rounded us out for what was needed. All that's left to go into then would be the filmmaking. The best part of this is the soundtrack and design. The crying sounds for La Llorona is eerie. It's mostly synced up with a song that starts heavy with drums before going into an eerie tune. That was effective for me. The cinematography is solid. It is early cinema again, so they don't do much to stand out. As for the effects, we don't get a lot, but that's again when this came out. I did like the ghostly effect of La Llorona, and it is if there's a gripe here, I just wanted more of that. So then in conclusion here, this is a solid film. I don't know if it's necessarily what I wanted. I acknowledge that it isn't fair to judge this movie that way, but what it does well is establishing the history of this lore, and I don't know if it's enough or how close it is to it, though. The acting I thought was solid. The soundtrack and design are good. No issues with the effects aside from wanting more. I watched it on YouTube where the subtitles weren't synced up as well as they could be. So that threw me off as I think that if you're into early cinema though or want to learn more about this lore, this is a decent enough watch in my opinion. So my rating here for The Crying Woman, aka La Llorona, is going to be a 7 out of 10. 
I don't think I necessarily need to do a spoiler section here with this movie either, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back, and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for the next episode is going to be another Traverse of the Threes, as I'm going to be pairing up Night of Terror with Bo is Afraid. This might actually make an interesting little double feature with kind of the titles and everything like that. Not really sure how the movies are going to correlate because I don't know enough about this 2023 release, but it definitely looks interesting and I love me some Ari Aster. So I'm also going to be watching The Crawling Hand. That is going to be the Traverse of the Threes movie. I also might watch a 2023 release as a rewatch on top of that. I've been looking through it. Some of the ones aren't released yet, and I'm not really going to pay for some of them, so I'm going to wait till they come to like a free service. Or, I mean, I end up biting the bullet eventually when I need to start doing these rewatches, but I digress on that for now. I'll also do some more summer series prep where I won't necessarily reveal things there, but... So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here then for this ending. So what I will say then in closing is thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>